Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema, both in front of and behind the camera. We do so by revisiting overlooked films and exploring their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. We highly recommend you visit their site, not only to listen to a bunch of other great podcasts, but also you can find links to view the shorts that we discuss in every episode. And if the shorts are available online for free, we provide that link for you. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Changing Reels, AC, Kiris on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all those good things. And if you happen to listen to us on iTunes, we would love if you could take a moment, just five minutes or so, and give our show a rating because we always welcome feedback. Feedback. Before we dive into today's episode, Andrew, how you doing? <laughs> That's going to be a complicated question that I hope to answer for both the listeners and myself throughout today's podcast, because I made the maybe smart, maybe not decision to watch all three of our selections today in order, and <laughs> I'm a little all over the place emotionally. Okay, you, know, you don't want to scare the listeners off. You mean you're in, a, I guess, a bundle of wonderful and complex emotions. That's what you mean to say. Yeah, let's go with uh, contemplative. It's a very contemplative space that I'm in, the intensity of which varies, but hopefully will make for good discussion as it has in the past. So yes, intensely contemplative. Uh, I'm in a, I guess, scattered place today. I haven't been sleeping too much because my little girl's got a bit of a cold being winter in Canada. It's slowly infecting the whole house. And oddly enough, I'm the only one that is 100%, but it just means I'm not sleeping well at all. So <laughs> if, if I trail off a bit, listeners, you know, please forgive me for this particular episode. Well, it's the pain of being the dad. Like most of the families that I know and am friends with, it seems like the whole household gets sick and then dad, not to foretell some kind of doom on your horizon, but the dad usually does the heavy lifting and then gets terribly sick. So I'm hoping that a nice surplus of vitamin C and blankets is available to you so that you can forestall the doom that I usually see. Yeah, well, see, usually I'm like one of the first to get it. Usually it would be my son, but oddly enough, it was my daughter this time but usually the son will get it from someone at school and then i will be the first to drop and my wife does all the heavy lifting but i have to pick up the slack this time so well you're a strong good man courtney so good on you uh we like to start off each episode by highlighting a short film that fits with our feature film or we just feel like discussing um because we love short films here at changing reels and we want to promote them as much as possible now andrew this week you how should we say, stretch the limits in terms of the definition of what a, a short film is. Now, according to uh, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Science, a short film is usually 40 minutes or less. But yours, I believe, pushed a good 60 minutes. So if you want to tell the listeners what your short pick was and why you decided to choose it. I decided to pick the, and I'm going to call it a uh, short film anthology, Nine Types of Light, the title of which is the exact same of TV on the radios. I believe it's their fourth album, their fourth or fifth, that was released in 2011. And just a personal note here, one of my absolute favorite albums. And I have to make an admission here. I kind of copped out. I was actually thinking about selecting another kind of music video for my short selection to start off Black History Month. After I had selected Nine Types of Light, I went back and I was looking at the videos for like Kanye West's Black Skinhead and Missy Elliott's Work It. That got my brain thinking even more in context of Nine Types of Light, how underappreciated music videos are 
as adept short stories or short films in and of themselves. One of the reasons that Nine Types of Light fascinates me from start to finish ties into an article we've kind of half discussed previously, The Only Black Guy at the Indie Rock Show, written by Martin Douglas, and it was on MTV uh, in January of 2013, in that he is dealing with his insecurity and frustration with people, assuming that he would like TV on the radio because he's black and he likes indie music. And he rightly points out how frustrating it should be for white folks to have the same assumption made of them that because they like hip hop, they have to own a copy of the Marshall Mathers LP. But what ultimately brought me to selecting nine types of light was this last pass from the article by Martin Douglas, and we'll include a link from that. There are endless stories about kids from the suburbs being enthralled by hip-hop. Why can't it work as a means of escapism the other way around? Perhaps there will be no surprise when a person of color says they like indie rock. No talk of the gentle subversion or tradition or stereotypes. As the lines between race and class slowly erode, as boundaries between genres are broken down and our individual tastes become more and more cosmopolitan, it's time to destroy those neat color-coded boxes society has placed us in. Of all the things dividing races already extant in America, there's no reason why music should be included. That last section, the shattering of dividing lines, but still maintaining you know, his unique outlook as a black man writing about independent music, is present throughout almost all of Nine Types of Light. What's fascinating about the best of the shorts is how they still celebrate the wildly eclectic and lovingly apocalyptic music of TV on the radio by providing that kind of shattered box, you know, either be it the narration of the people of multiple colors and creeds that acts as a shoestring structure between each of the short films, but also still maintaining that unique experience of being a black artist. I think that's especially prevalent in the short for Will Do, one of the best songs about love. And what's great about the Will Do section, directed by Duggan O'Neill, is how it shows technology in actually kind of a positive way, like being able to keep those connections alive between people. And as we're questioning initially with the short of whether they're connecting in real life or whether this is just a stand-in for real life, and then the bodies start to intermingle, it's just these beautiful black men and women. I think that the uh, white member of TV on the radio, I don't even think he makes an appearance if he does it's brief but them all reaching out to each other through the technology and just simply caressing each other even if they feel alone getting this connectedness through the technology that is a visual metaphor going along with the song and TV on the radio at large. It just seems to work so beautifully, keeping in the spirit of the article that I think about whenever I'm listening to TV on the radio, that shattering of the box, but also maintaining that unique viewpoint. I don't think all the shorts do that. Some of them are just kind of more unusual on their own terms, but when they're at their best, like they are with Will Do, or I would also say um, No Future Shot, then they're practically transcendent and their short experiences in their own right, even though they're contributing to, you know, this larger semi-connected whole. 
It's interesting that you picked Will do the virtual reality S1 as the great connector, because one thing that struck me about this series of shorts is that you do have technology in terms of how it could be used to bring us all together. But then I also noticed through line of technology, I guess, sedating us at times. Like yeah. there's, there's that one, I think it's called Repetition. It's an animated short, and it's you see basically the same scene, like people in a theater or someone at a factory, and then the repetition is that same scene, but the world's getting worse. And I found that through a lot of the shorts, you kind of get that weird thing where it's almost like we rely a little too much on technology, and technology is sedating us to a troublesome level. Um, one thing I, I did like about the structure of this film, or if you want to call it visual album, because I guess that's the term that we're using now for like Beyonce's Lemonade and what yeah, have Frank you. Yeah, Frank Ocean, too. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this obviously predates both of those albums. I liked that they brought in the multicultural group of people for, I guess, the questionnaire segments throughout and asking them, telling them about their dreams. They're talking about what they envision the future to be. And I think one person said something like, we'll be too obsessed over religious differences or something like that. And, like, you know, there was a lot of stuff that they were hitting on back in 2011 that it's like, yep, yeah, really striking a chord right now. Uh, at, it was a really interesting concept. I agree with you. Not every short works. There's a few that are a little too abstract for my taste, but the ones that really struck me are like, we'll do, I think it was called Forgotten, which was kind of like a Blade Runner-esque zombie hybrid, which it, so- it <laughs> yeah. sounds, it sounds odd, but it's really, it's, this guy is going around tracking down people with his futuristic gun and blowing their heads off. But you also find out that it's instead of just being like a Blade Runner meets zombie tale, it is really a commentary on fame and our obsession with it and I also like that towards the end the band wasn't afraid to incorporate some humor there's that one great sequence where they're all sitting together I guess they've reunited after a while and are just asking well what have they been doing while they were apart and one guy started a dojo one guy's working at the same diner that they are eating at I think it leads into like a whole video with guy living out his prince fantasy almost like a homeless prince roaming the land so a lot of creativity went into this project. My favorite one is the larger lead singer who says that he's become part of a Peanuts-inspired LARPing community. Given the kind of apocalyptic and melancholic nature of TV on the radio's music at times, that's so perfect because Charles M. Schultz, he was the epitome of the newspaper strip melancholy. And on the note that not all of them work very well, when they don't work, at least they don't work in a weird way. My absolute favorite song on the album and one that had helped me through some really tough times was Keep Your Heart. And that's got this terrorist subplot, electronic bomb, mannequin murder thing going on. It's kind of hard to keep track of what actually is happening as as one man, it looks like, betrays a woman and her male lover, murders the loving man, and, and then the woman's left to pick up the pieces. But to me, that is part of kind of like the positive cycle of technology that we see and will do, even if the negative is also highlighted. I think especially you're right to mention repetition for that, because it's 
through those electronic waves that she's able to piece the man back together, her lover, as a memory that she can keep with her. You know, whether that's positive or not, I suppose will be up to the viewer and the listener. But it's another example of the running commentary on technology and relations as it is between everybody. I know this was a stretch, and and I appreciate you uh, putting up with my selection here. TV on the radio, they continue to occupy such a unique space in music film and art in general like even wineries and such it just shows how their viewpoint stays so uniquely their own of a band comprised predominantly of black musicians while still embracing both suspicion and positivity in regard to world at large technology and even the role their own music plays in it I want to sit down and listen to this album fully because I find with visual albums in general, you get so caught up in the visual storytelling that sometimes you miss things in the lyrics. Like, you know, there's certain pointed moments when you just got your headsets on and you're just really engulfed yourself into the music that really stand out. For TV on the radio, I think I have their return to Cookie Mountain album. I wasn't such a big fan of their first one, but I have their second one. And then I kind of fell off in terms of listening to them. And this actually got me wanting to go back and catch up on this album and some of the other ones I've missed. Obviously, <laughs> I am hugely in support of that. I, I wasn't very big on Seeds, which was the last album that they did. But Return to Cookie Mountain, Dear Science, and Nine Types of Light, that's like a murderer's row of excellent music. And kind of want to open, as our remaining two features are pretty intense, with a positive or at least conflicting, if occasionally optimistic view, which, now that we're on the subject of intensity courtney you picked one heck of a short i was kind of taken by surprise so why don't you tell us a bit about it the short i picked is entitled video and it was directed by randy yang i can't remember what year it came out i want to say it was fairly recently like maybe a year ago or so but it's a simple tale about these two young black teenagers and they're walking talking about their life the boys in their life and what have you and they witness a woman who happens to be white being belligerent to a homeless black man as she's going off on them they capture it on their cell phones and then this starts the debate between them and the woman in terms of what are they going to do with that cell phone footage she wants the footage back she doesn't want them to upload it online at first they are reluctant to give it to her and then she proposes a monetary reward for getting that footage which leads to moral conflicts in front of, inside the two young women i was actually looking for a film that talks about like the positive aspects of the black experience and the universal nature of it and then this i came across this one and, and it stuck with me and i kept thinking about it like a day or two after i'm like no no this is the one that i have to talk about because i think it is so relevant to our time right now not just in terms of the racial divide but how we view racism now. And I think one of the problems that we've seen in the last year or so is the whole debate on whether racism in America was getting better before the whole Black Lives Matter movement, what have you, or did it just make it worse? And I've been listening to a few right-wing podcasts in the last two months or so since Mr. Trump was inaugurated, just to hear what the other side has to say about him and whatnot. And one thing I noticed is when they talk about race, they really don't talk about race, if you know what I mean. They'll blame Obama for causing the racial divide, and the more you listen, you realize when Obama was elected, many people thought that ended kind of, that they were no longer racist, that we could just wipe our hands with it and move on. And when the whole Black Lives Matter, Colin Kaepernick 
stuff started to bubble up, people took great offense to it. And I find the subtlety of racism now. People don't want to be called a racist. No one wants to be called a racist. You know, it's a horrible thing to be called. At the same time, we still evoke a lot of racist traits amongst us that's become so, I guess, mainstream and so subtle that we don't even think about it. So I thought this film was a good force you to think of the issues on both sides. How not only from the belligerent woman and what she was doing, but also how the young girls react to it and what they thought about it. So in a long roundabout way, that's why I've chosen one. There is a lot going on in Randy Yang's film here. It's basically intersectionality at large. I mean, we're looking at white feminism, black feminism, class, racism, whether violence is okay to use as a rebelling structure or not. There are no easy answers to any of this, but the comparison comparison is important when we consider that, you know, this woman is trying to buy them off so that they can't out her as racist and that action of her trying to bribe the two of them it sits uncomfortably well with a lot of the criticisms of Kaepernick's protests which is you know you're rich we've bought you off essentially why are you complaining personally even considering how complex a lot of the issues are I think it would have been best if they decided to take her money and then upload the video anyway that may be what happened it's entirely unclear because we never get to see first hand what's done and even the girl has to reassure the woman that yes it's gone you don't need to worry about that now you know your racist secrets safe with us that intersection man it is just prevalent in so many ways even the way that the dialogue overlaps at the beginning it was honestly a little difficult for me to keep up because just to be perfectly honest I'm not around people who talk like that very often and it was like an Altman-esque view into a group that I don't have much insight into and that immediate code switching when they encounter the woman and she's berating the homeless guy asking for change and handing out books to this clear angry specific pointed voice it makes a case for why directed rage is so important to get her attention and she becomes suspicious of what they're going to do what it's going to do to her reputation but i like that even the woman she is wrong period to have belittled and harassed that homeless guy who wasn't doing anything wrong, wasn't catcalling her, nothing like that. But then to also generate at least some sympathy for her, she talks about the glass ceiling, how hard it is for her to maintain her position as a partner in a law firm. But then in the background, one thing I found really, really interesting was how the camera shifted the space between the two girls and then the woman. And when they're at an intersection, there's a man eyeball licking the woman he's just checking her out head to toe no shame whatsoever and the girls notice this they see her and the man and they kind of share like an uncomfortable moment with each other not with the woman and then when we get back to the woman the man is still staring at her so it generates some sympathy for her position sure but then the short goes on and keeps things complicated like is it okay for this woman to buy our silence because she has had to work hard. Well, that's the point of 
criticizing modern white feminism is that it's usually for a feminism of middle to upper class women. And she uses her class and her status as a white female lawyer to try and buy their complicity. So Yang doesn't let anyone off the hook exactly, but even by generating that sympathy in those tiny moments, it shows how complicit the lawyer woman is for keeping the harassment going by thinking that she can just buy silence with her class. One thing that really struck me about this film was how Yang walks that delicate line because the film never feels preachy, but it raises so many issues on both sides. Like, as you pointed out perfectly with the lawyer, but even from the girl's standpoint it's touching on something really potent regarding our culture in terms of observing so they capture her on video and they let her be known that you can't say that but even in the act of them saying you shouldn't be saying that it doesn't happen nowadays we witness horrific stuff all the time and especially now we're starting to see so much more open racism and our first instinct is either to record it and upload it or to silently watch but at no point do we intervene and that's also a, a very problematic nature and even the way how the two girls end up getting into a physical confrontation with each other based on the fact of money because one wants to take the money and upload but the other one's saying well you can't take the money which is basically like stealing and then upload it two wrongs don't make a right in that sense but it was just a powerful film and one of my favorite moments is actually the moment where nothing is being said it's the, the woman's ahead of them walking across the street they're falling behind and it's just pure silence but it's an uncomfortable silence so you never know is the woman going to take off are the kids going to take off and so much is just being said by the actresses through their subtle facial gestures it really struck me and i and this is a short that i hope more people see because i think it is a great conversation starter no absolutely and oddly enough i was thinking about they live when that confrontation happens and i was also thinking about they live in the short on nine types of light with the zombies because ultimately our our superhero who thinks that he's killing the undead is sleeping with the undead and that's so a they live thing at the end of video here their struggle is this scenario's version of the infamous sunglasses fight in they live brianna played by riley stife she has the difficult role of trying to get chantelle played by mars williams the glasses on in this case it's no either we shouldn't take the money and upload the video or we should just take the money and go ahead and upload the video that's a struggle that to me on the outside is necessary you know we talked and joked a little bit last week about how it's okay to punch nazis but is it okay for folks who are supposed to be your allies in these situations to be complicit in harassment just by allowing this stuff to happen or allowing themselves to be bought off i thought that what randy yang did in switching the focus kind of from brianna as the moral center to chantelle like leaving on chantelle's silence and uncertainty about what she did that to me is the heart of a lot of the struggles right now what do we owe our friends what do we owe our allies especially if they're going to call themselves allies when racism is so blatant as it is now with swastikas going up freaking everywhere it doesn't leave us on any kind of comfort and you really have to ask yourself in this situation who is doing the right thing to me brianna was completely in the right keep the money upload the video screw the woman but everyone else's reaction is probably going to be a little different 
It's funny because I was more on Chantel's side, although I don't think she should have taken the money. But when she finally agreed to that arrangement, to then take the money and then upload would have felt wrong. And I think it would have opened her up to a whole slew of legal problems anyway, considering you're dealing with a lawyer. But the one thing I loved about the ending of this, (laughs) the one thing I loved about the ending of this film was that Chantel has that great moment with the woman where she asked her basically, what do you see? I feel that it's an important question because right now even people are talking about about being allies and even allies being conflicted i don't think people always truly see the other side or what the other side wants i think they only see their version of helping and i know when trump was elected and they had like i think it was like the safety pin campaign that was going all over facebook i watched and i said okay i understand people wanting to have like a safe space and want to be part of something that unites them who feel that they've been hurt or objected but i was like i was like do i don't think people who are going to be afflicted by racism want that i don't need to see a safety pin to know that you're a good person you show me you're a good person by standing up to racist chants and whatnot as you encounter it and no offense anyone who's listened that may have done it but i feel like the safety pin campaign was more for that person's benefit opposed to the purpose of quote-unquote helping others i don't know if that makes any sense but i think that we're in a a time now where because everyone's so conflicted and no one really wants to have an honest discussion about race the complexities of it. everyone just kind of wants to have their own little quick fix of what they feel will make them feel better in terms of how to deal with the issue and think that that will help the greater good and i I find that's where the issues arise and on a side note last year when there was a whole bunch of riots going on and the big black lives matter movement was occurring one of my wife's acquaintances who she hadn't talked to in a while sent her an email i guess she was planning to move back to canada and she was wondering if canada had the same problems that were going on in the states and it was the first time she actually asked my wife point blank what's your experiences as a, a black woman it kind of caught my wife off guard because she hadn't heard from this woman in a while but it was just the idea that no one had really asked her about that my wife knew full well that she was asking because the woman's coming back here and she wants to make sure that it's safe for her being a white woman to come back but but my wife was like, well, well, what should I do? And I said, answer honestly. Tell her about your experiences. And I think we need more of those kind of just open discussions. I agree. And your point about the allyship and the pins thing, helping in a way that's comfortable, we do see that here at the end of video two when the lawyer reaches down and gives Chantel a hanky for her bleeding nose. When she's confronted with pain directly, the quote unquote black on black violence nonsense. Oh, of course, she's going to go down and bring her a hanky and blot out the nose. But talking honestly about who Chantel is in this lawyer's eyes or who the homeless black man is the only bit of honesty we really get from the lawyer is when she's covering her own tracks and when she's belittling the homeless black man just one of those things that makes you think and again there's so many of those moments in this film so you know i highly recommend that if you're listening to this episode you stop by modernsuperior.com and just check out that i'm sure we'll have a link to it in our show notes we'll also post a link to the article that andrew you had mentioned in the tv on the radio part Yes, The Only Black Guy at the Indie Rock Show by Martin Douglas. And of course, I'm also going to include a link to Nine Types of Light, the full collection of short films. Now, before we get to our feature film, we're going to take a moment to change reels, and then we'll come back with Spike Lee's A Huey P. Newton Story. (laughs) 
Our feature film today is A Huey P. Newton Story. It's a 2001 film directed by Spike Lee, and it's based off the one-man solo play by Roger Gunvey Smith, where he basically does a lengthy series of monologues documenting Huey P. Newton's life, from him as an activist to founding the Black Panther Party to the tough time he had in general, especially when it came to run-ins with the law and the government trying to suppress his story pretty much every time. Now, Andrew, this is an interesting choice. At least I think it's an interesting choice because originally you had picked D. Reese's Pariah to discuss, and then we decided we were going to move that to a later episode when we were talking about LGBT films. So when you said you were going to bring in a Spike Lee film, this was not the one that I thought you would pull up. And frankly, it was one of the Spike Lee films I hadn't seen before. So I thought, out of all the films, like, why would he pick this one? And then I watched it. <laughs> And I'd, oh, okay, this makes perfect sense. So uh, do you want to tell the listeners who may have not seen this particular Spike Lee film why you chose it? I want to uh, dangle that answer like a carrot for a moment. Just indulge me, because what Spike Lee film were you thinking I was going to pick? I thought you might do Chirac, which was more recent, and one I saw after I watched this. I didn't expect you to pick out Malcolm X, but I was thinking you'd pick, and not do the right thing, I didn't think you'd pick that, but I was thinking you'd do Chirac, or for some reason he got game popped in my mind. I was like, no, no, Andrew won't pick that one. So... Oh, and uh, Miracle on, was it Miracle of St. Anna? Miracle at St. Anna, yeah, yeah that, that, one. that one's a, uh, I think it's a little underappreciated, but at the same time it is maybe one of Lee's weaker movies overall. And to finally drop the carrot, a Huey P. Newton story occupies an important emotional and historical place for me. You're mentioning of Malcolm X. And Spike Lee's film, obviously, Malcolm X, is an important segue because one of the things that especially the modern Democratic Party seems to be doing is rebuilding their history around Barack Obama. And if anything, his presidency was punctuated by trying to be the reasonable adult in the room and looking forward to conversations and so on. And obviously, Martin Luther King Jr.'s history is cemented, but it's also a very selective history. History. Many white allies and conservatives generally like to cherry pick quotes from his work without considering context or his fight for workers' rights overall or his his disdain of white moderates and so on. So Martin Luther King Jr.'s history, it is solidified even if we have to fight against it being recontextualized. But when it comes to other activists, Angela Davis, in the play, A Hugh P. Newton Story, they also mention older blues artists like Bessie Davis, Malcolm X, and then of course Hugh P. Newton himself. They are all in danger of being completely erased from history. Like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King's kind of partnership, kind of rivalry of tactics is something that's not really the source of conversation, particularly since it doesn't really fit into the placating mold of Martin Luther King that he was considering more of Malcolm X's overt tactics towards the end of his life. And then Huey P. Newton is even more conflicted than that. He has been the subject of such an efficient smear job by the government and by both people who claim to be allies and also people obviously against him to the point where people don't actually know what the Black Panther Party was about, what they actually 
did. All they really saw were a bunch of angry black folks with guns. The play, and by extension, Lee's direction of it. First of all, Lee, for whatever reason, I'm still having arguments with people as to whether he is one of the all-time great filmmakers or not. Even if they respect his body of work, it's usually limited to something like The 25th Hour or Inside Man or Do the Right Thing. I'll occasionally hear some love for Jungle Fever, which was another movie I contemplated for this, but decided ultimately Huey P. Newton was it. So even with his amazing, restless body of work, like I cannot think of another director that has challenged himself creatively and also structurally in terms of getting his movies funded and made. Anyone who has challenged themselves in the system as much as Spike Lee has. Within his body of work, even if you consider him a great filmmaker, a lot of his stage adaptations and documentaries end up getting overlooked. Four Little Girls was something else that I contemplated, but at least his documentaries, especially when the levees broke, have reached a significant level of acclaim and are kind of part of our cultural conversation when we talk about the all-time great documentaries. His stage plays not so much. Passing Strange to me is my absolute favorite of his stage play adaptations, but he also did a fantastic job with John Leguizamo and John Leguizamo's show Freak. So why a Huey P. Newton story? This being Black History Month, I did not want to select a movie that would maybe contribute to even in our conversation, a continued erasure of some of the greatest figures conflicted, though they were both in their public and private lives. And Roger Gwenve Smith's performance in this, I cannot begin to imagine the toll it must have taken on him personally and on an emotional level and a physical level. Just looking at it from a pure acting perspective, it is one of the most tremendous works I have ever seen just for Smith himself. But then when you factor Lee's direction into it, the intensity and claustrophobia caging Smith as Newton in behind chain link fences, keeping this harsh glare on him the entire time as he furiously smokes, it creates this intense emotionally and contextually informative space in history, even if we're watching what's essentially a fictional recreation of Newton's shyness and anxiety coming into the forefront that kind of explains him as part of the Panthers and his history in general. On a personal note, I struggle deeply with depression and anxiety and Part of that is a need to help. Gwenve Smith, with his performance here, he captures that anxiety of being trapped in your own desire to help people and not wanting to be martyred. The sense that we get from Smith as Newton is the frustration of a leader who believes so deeply in what he's doing, but his leadership isn't exactly inspiring others to follow in his example, more to follow him. So that is my mountain of reasons that... I selected a Huey P. Newton story, and you mentioned that this was your first time along with it. This was my third, and I think it hits me a little harder each time, but considering, I guess, all the context I just vomited out, what were your thoughts here? I liked the film. It... (laughs) 
I, I often struggle when it comes to performance films, especially ones that take Fences, for example. Fences is a good film in terms of the dialogue and the performances, but it still feels very much like a play. And sometimes and when I'm in the theater, I often, even if it's adapted from a play, I want to get that cinematic experience. This one was more of, because it was a performance film, I still had to kind of get my head in the right space. I don't know. I kind of like compartmentalize my experiences. So if I'm in a theater that's designed for a play, I've got the play mentality. If I'm watching a film, I'm thinking cinematically. It wouldn't have been my first choice for a Spike Lee film. But then having said that, I appreciate that Spike Lee does it. Like you brought up about Spike Lee being one of the all-time greats and I but I think it was three, maybe four years ago, I had written a, a piece on Spike Lee just questioning that because even though he's had a few missteps in recent years, his canon is phenomenal. And him as an artist he takes so many daring steps. Like, as you mentioned, Four Little Girls, When the Levees Broke, which is another one I thought you might pick, because that's a fantastic documentary. He can do comedy. He can do romance. He can do thriller. He can do music video. He can do it all. But I think he has gotten such a bad rap for being, I guess, quote-unquote, the angry black man that people don't look at him as an artist. So even in this film, I appreciated the risks that he was taking. And I was just captivated by the performance and the dialogue that Smith does in this film. The way how he tackles Huey's persona, and I liked how you said that he wanted to be a leader, but, but not necessarily a martyr. He wanted people to follow into his example, and I like that even as he's dissecting the movement and all the great things that they've done, he also talks about the flaws, the ways how they open themselves up to be killed by the mistakes that they were making, and I thought that was an insightful approach. So I was captivated more by the performance than I was the stylistic aspects that Lee himself self-brought to it, but considering the performance was so good, I could see why Lee would want to take a step back and just let Smith do what he does best. See, for me, it's the stylistic choices that Lee makes that end up creating this frame where Gwenve Smith's Newton basically is a harsh contrast to everything that's around him. Like, the visual metaphor of those in shadows around him, separated by that chain link fence, that fits in so perfectly with Newton's insecurity and the rambling way that Gwenve Smith works through Newton's emotions as he is halted up to this leader martyr position. With the fence and the shadows, the folks that he wants to inspire, they're still in the background. They're still taking their cues from this man who is killing himself on a national stage and then in the context of the movie on a performance stage trying to get them roused trying to get them to follow his example and in terms of Lee's other work I cannot think of anything nearly as claustrophobic as a Huey P. Newton story almost all of it is filmed either with this really harsh backlighting so that we get part of Gwenve Smith's expression frequently pained and struggling through this veil of smoke, or we get him contextualizing himself into the struggle with this documentary footage that frequently plays on the walls or in the background. And those moments where Newton, working to inspire, did manage to have some success in 
action. But again, the, the folks, the mass that he wanted to stir, to get them out there, they still keep themselves separated from him. And in that way, the spotlight, that harsh backlighting, it works as kind of a double-edged halo. He is the martyr he did not want to be. And Gwenvae Smith and Lee, by creating that harsh space, by making it so painful at times to even look at Newton on stage. I think that is where Lee's style, part of the reason that you were so captivated by Gwenvae Smith's performance, remove that or maybe just stick a camera in the crowd or something like that. And, and we lose a lot in the process. Hmm, that's a, it's an interesting take. He's so magnetic that you would still get a lot. Like, I didn't really need the documentary footage to aid it because I was just so captivated. But like, he's such a great verbal storyteller, even in his rambling ways. Like, I, I loved how he was looking at, as you mentioned, the smear campaign, the way how the media lust for sensationalism, but it was the negative type. They love the image of blacks with guns because you can run with that. You can create a horror story with that. And there was a great moment we were talking about how they didn't focus on the before school breakfast programs that they did. All the community outreach that the Panthers did, that did not get any airtime. But the minute you have a photo of one of them holding a gun, that was massive. And then he said that, you know, when we picked up a gun, the government went and then changed the laws, the gun laws to ensure that we we couldn't pick it up legally and all that stuff I thought was fascinating and even if we're going to talk about the arming of them and how they were essentially viewed as terrorists back then and talked about Martin Luther King his past being cherry picked in terms of how we now remember him and praise him and there was a time where he was viewed as a, a terrorist as well so I found it interesting when Huey was mentioning that sometimes to get rid of the gun you need to pick up the gun and I, I don't know that was such a powerful line and the way how he delivered it it kind of lingered in my mind throughout not obviously not making me want to run out and arm up but it was just an interesting <laughs> interesting way to look at it. like you know some people would look at that and say well that's hate speech right you are trying to incite terror and killing of people and it's like no but he's raising an interesting point you're being constantly attacked sometimes the only way to get peace is to pick up that arms and do what you have to do and then come to a state of peace right it's an, a very interesting conflict there but it was moments like that that were captivated and seeing him there with his cigarette in hand verbally created such vivid images in my mind now, that's why i would say like stylistic i wasn't as taken like it was a nice setting but it was just the images that he was creating in my mind were far more powerful. No, that makes a lot of sense. And the point about the power growing from the barrel of the gun, that plays into the editing at times when he is frustrated with history being rewritten around him. One part, especially when he's talking about existential dilemmas and existential dilemmas goes into him chatting up a girl. And then that goes into him talking about the blues and the blues as being, you know, one of the first great existential arts along with Camus and the rest. Gwenve Smith repeating, it's all the blues, it's all blues, it's all blues, it's all blues, and cutting again and again and again. I can see how those vivid images would form in your mind as opposed to what's happening on screen. But even on screen, I like how that snap power, in this case art instead of the barrel of the gun, it's still reinforced in a visual metaphor as rapid fire shots firing off again and again and again. That's a hallmark of excellent emotional propaganda. And propaganda is not a dirty word. We're all watching something in the hopes that it propagates some kind of emotion within us. But that moment, he's blending music history, racial history, existential philosophy through the dialogue. Then with Lee 
and his editor for this one, one of his frequent flyers, Barry Alexander Brown, the gun is there, but it's there in these images as they're fired again and again of Gwenve Smith's Newton surrounded by this history. He only has like an arm's length access to frame after frame after frame. And that is a frequent visual motif with him getting caught in a train of thought that frustrates him. That's not usually directly about his activism, but more about, again, that rewriting of history that just frustrates him to such an extent that the movie itself has to break away and try and look at him from a new perspective in order for us to healthily take this all in. One of the things that struck me, especially about his frustration, was how much of it you would think could still relate to modern times. Like, I mean, this was done in 2001, right? So I can't remember if it was just before September 11th when this aired or not. But the fact that he made a great point about saying that more people now raised the roof, did the hands in the partying gesture, then he says then they put their fists in the air in protest, right? And that whole, we've been doing all of this movement to try and not only bring equality, but to awake the people and the people are still happily sedated. They're being sedated by the same oppressors that are trying to keep us down. And you could just see the draining look in his eyes when he's talking about that. He's trying the best he can to fight the cause, but it seems like it's a losing battle if people aren't willing to stand up and everyone's just going to care more about the party than the actual politics at play. And I thought it was kind of amusing when he said America could use a new gangster, especially in the White House. All right, And you think, <laughs> well, well, Huey, if you were still around today, I wonder what you would think about certain policies. I thought that was a pointed moment also added a nice bit of maybe unintentional humor to the film I think there's tons of intentional humor to this. Gwende Smith's writing as Newton is consistently hilarious. Like there's that part early on when he's talking, dictating the bullet points for the Black Panther platform. Great, great about, moment. Yeah, and, and he's talking about pigs and cops and such, and, and he says, that's why I could never be a black Muslim. I love my bacon too much. Shortly after that, he follows it up with, it must have looked like a combination between Rambo and Chef. What do we call that? Shambo? In my notes, it is impossible to keep up with the zingers that he comes out with. And that speaks to just the strength of Gwenbe Smith's writing. You know, he wrote the single performance that Lee worked with him to capture with this kind of energy that he's able to capture that shy, volatile public persona, but still leave in quite a bit of room for humor. And considering the flirtation with existentialism that we have in a Huey P. Newton story, what are we going to do if things don't seem like like they matter. More often than not, Gwynevay Smith's Newton decides to laugh. And what are you talking about with that line of dialogue Newton has about raising the roof versus raising the fist? That brings back to mind the question of allyship and, and what is a good ally or what is a good supporter, follower, whatever that we talked about when we were discussing video. That is also why stylistically I appreciate how Lee approached this project and probably why it's not exactly one of his better knowns because if you watch Malcolm X it's a very good movie but I can imagine someone watching it and then coming away from it thinking oh boy zoot suits are awesome and the Lindy Hop is great so we should bring that back instead of getting the radical Muslim message of resistance and peace center to Malcolm X's life that slickness of Malcolm X honestly I think is what keeps it from being a important 
tool in education, there is a bit of loving sentimentality, uh, especially in those zoot suit moments that I don't know if it's as instructive as the out and out aggressive approach that he takes here. There's no pausing for a wistful, happy look into the past. Either we're going to have Gwynve Smith's frame jarring everything back in with a movement and a new rambling, or in the background, we're going to have the documentary footage of someone struggling or the idea of what the Black Panthers were supposed to be still being separated by that chain link fence. So when I talk about Lee as a great restless artist, this movie didn't seem like it was created or even the show was created to reassure allies or even to create allies, you know, whatever they are in whatever system. This is more a direct confrontation between Newton, the public persona, Newton as presented by Gwynve Smith as this tangle of nerves and then Lee assaulting us with this claustrophobia and the set design and the shadows that proves an interesting counterpoint to something like Malcolm X, which I believe gets a lot of the historical details accurate and really celebrates the power of Malcolm X, especially in those great marching scenes. But because of the slickness of Malcolm X, because, you know, at its heart, it's still a big budget motion picture that keeps it from attaining, I guess, a certain kind of verisimilitude, a truth of the person that a Huey P. Newton story, because of its aggression, both in style and in content, doesn't. But I wonder if they had the bigger production budget if they would have gone for a tighter sheen to it. Because when you're adapting the solo performance and you're trying to keep the authenticity of it, I can see that comparison in terms of Malcolm X being Shory. I think if anything, as great as Malcolm X is, I think the one thing that kind of keeps it out of the conversation for a lot of people is the length. It's one of those films that I don't think a lot of people can go back to frequently and revisit. Even as an educational tool, it's still close to four hours. But I wonder what this film would have been like had he been given a, a bigger budget and they decided not to do it as the one-man show, but do it as like a true feature. I mean, even if they could get funny, that's another issue, because that's always been one of the hurdles for Spike Lee, as prolific as he is. It still has to struggle to get funding for certain works nowadays. That's a very interesting question. I have to think about that one. That almost kind of shortchanges Lee's restlessness as a creator. He never did another movie like Do the Right Thing. We could see aspects of it show up in other productions, but the two big budget movies that I think of when I think of Spike Lee are, are typically Malcolm X and then Inside Man. And those two movies are extremely different, despite the fact that they've got big budget behind them. And even his third, not quite as successful, um, Miracle at St. Anne. Anna, that has its own complexity you wouldn't really expect from a studio and is still very different from Inside Man and Malcolm X. So here, I don't even think a larger budget would have been in question. And I'm thinking back to his semi-autobiography, That's My Story and I'm sticking to it. There's a part where he's talking about how much easier it was to secure funding for his projects via television. And a Hugh P. Newton story was one of those. And because uh, HBO, 
they've been the ones to fund a lot of his documentary work as well. So the kind of the ease of having that television fluidness, being able to uh, produce and create how he wants versus theatrical feature lengths. When we consider the timing of a Huey P. Newton story, you know, it was released in 2001. He had already started working in that kind of lower budget television mentality. Freak, his version of John Leguizamo's stage play by the same name, you know, that was three years earlier. That was in 98. And then Four Little Girls, also one of his co-productions of television, that came out in 1997. So even if we look at his artistic trajectory, I don't think a Hugh P. Newton story would ever have had some kind of grand design by it, like he did with Malcolm X, both with where he was financially and where he was able to secure production at the time. And then also just going back to Lee's restlessness as a creator, like he did his Malcolm X. And when he did have something else that was kind of based in history, like Miracle at St. Anna, he took a more fantastical approach to it versus the meat and potatoes, large scale of Malcolm X. I guess it's an interesting kind of think process. Like what would this movie look like if it had a big budget or if it did go for that Malcolm X approach? But given who Spike Lee is as an artist and the financial concerns and so on, he was in when he made this. I just don't think something like that would have been possible or would have been nearly as effective as what we get with a Huey P. Newton story. Yeah, and it's one of those films where I would argue is probably one of the better on-screen representations of the Black Panther movement. Like, I know there's been a bunch of films that have kind of touched on the issue, but this one stuck with me, and I think maybe because it was so stripped down, just in terms of raw motion and storytelling, but I kind of wish there was even more films because I know when they talk about films about slavery for example a lot of people draw the guy you know another film about slavery it's like well really there haven't been that many in terms of like really good ones there's been a handful of films about slavery a good portion of them have been bad and then there's been like a few really good ones and if you're going to talk about various aspects of the black experience especially in American culture I would love to see a few more films talking about the Black Panther movement in terms of the different people that were involved but also just different styles of, of telling like you know it doesn't necessarily have to be this straight biopic drama but this was a very interesting way to approach it there are many creative ways that you can tell that tale and show those things without falling into typical convention just as you could tell a lot more films about the modern day experience as we, we talked about when we were doing um, Medicine for Melancholy and Love Jones, like black love stories in relation to the greater context. Like There's a wealth of stories to be told. Just like every year, you're guaranteed at least three World War II related films. <laughs> you know, like it would be interesting if you added maybe a few more. I agree with you that part of history is getting erased, but also smeared to the point where all people know of them right now is, oh, they were terrorists. Well, no, they weren't. There was a lot of interesting facets to that activism that's no longer being told. So granted, nowadays, if you do a search for Black Panthers and put movie, you're going to get the Marvel, right? That's what yeah. that's what's going to pop up in Google, most likely. So it'd be interesting to have a few more films from that era be told. When you talk about different ways of telling the story of the Black Panthers, I think that something instructive and even kind of lighthearted, like do a coming of age story of one of the kids that grew up and were actually kept alive by the Black Panthers because they've been such a convenient boogeyman for so many people. And that's where a Huey P. Newton story is really effective is we get the degrading things said and done to Newton and the effect that it had on his mind, 
even though we do get that glimpse of good, it's more about Newton's mind space and emotions as he's trying to do this good. Do something like a Bronx Tale, only set it with the Black Panthers. There was another movie I was actually strongly considering for our discussion here, Black History Month. Was it Night Catches Us, the Tanya Hamilton love story that was kind of set around the Black Panther era? Negative. Okay, um, you should check that one out. But, it's a it's an interesting film. It's, it stars Anthony Mackie and Kerry Washington, and I believe it was 2010 that it came out. Okay, it's another well, example of films that could tackle the Black Panther subject matter, but still can tell an interesting narrative, throw a different side to it. See, I was thinking more something like Fresh, and maybe we'll have to circle back around to that either later this year or when we hit Black History Month next year. But Fresh is the kind of movie, too, that I could see giving us a glimpse of growing up in the Black Panther community without necessarily sentimentalizing, but also emphasizing like a lot of the good that it does. There are a lot of different approaches we could be taking here. And in line with your suggestion, it is a damn shame that the Black Panther Panthers and Huey P. Newton and Angela Davis and so on, they've been so demonized and created into this all-encompassing boogeyman that even freaking Reverend Al Sharpton, who is one of the most convenient boogeymen in the world for conservatives and folks who want to rail against racial equality, it's so sad that these are the few movies that we have to talk about. That's where I'm so happy that Lee, working with one of his best collaborators, Roger Gwenve Smith's work in clockers and then do the right thing and school days and so on he has been one of the most unpredictable actors in spike lee's kind of pocket for his movies i i just want <laughs> i want more this is history that is being erased and i'm so happy that we've got this, that we've got this aggressive, sad, lonely, but intense take on QEP Newton. So I hear you, man. You know, if anyone, if any generation of directors and storytellers would have a need to tap into that well of history, especially considering what's going on with Black Lives Matter and the struggles that we're having with immigration bans and Muslims to call back Gwende Smith's joke about loving bacon too much to be a black Muslim. That is a history we can't afford or ever really could afford to have erased, but could really resonate with everything that's going on now. One last thing I'll say about Smith is watching this struck me of how underappreciated he is as an actor. He reminded me a lot of Philip Seymour Hoffman in the sense that before Philip Seymour Hoffman like really blew up, he was that character actor that could show up in any supporting role and just disappear in that character. Right? You almost forget that he's in certain films. And when he's in it, he's very good. And Smith reminded me a lot of that, especially watching this film. Like You see the magnetic personality, the commitment to character, but then also thinking back, he's been in a lot of films. As you mentioned, a lot of Spike Lee films. He was Most recently, I saw him in Birth of a Nation, and he had a, a amusing although also disturbing cameo in Chirac as well but he's such a good actor and whenever he's on screen he just takes over the scene yet you could easily forget his name because you only think of that character you don't think about the actor playing and that kind of reminded me a lot of Philip Seymour Hoffman especially the early part of his career and I kind of wish that Smith had even more opportunities for more lead roles instead of just being that great guy that pops up delivers a great scene and then is gone. And that's one of the reasons I love Spike Lee's stage movies 
and documentaries the most because he has to depend on other people in part for his vision. It kind of tempers some of Lee's excesses that occasionally get in the way and occasionally work beautifully. I think an example of where they get in the way would be something like She Hate Me, but then something where they work wonderfully to me would be Chirac. That special talent that he has for drawing those performances out of these actors that we usually consider just strong background players. We see that with John Leguizamo. And then my most recent favorite, a man I absolutely adore door is Coleman Domingo who had roles in Selma in addition to Spike Lee in Passing Strange and Red Hook Summer. And regardless of what you think, especially of Red Hook Summer, it just shows with Domingo like what we see with Gwen Vey Smith, Lee's talent of attracting these performers and then giving them a stage instead of pushing them to the background or just giving them the pop up and now I'm going to leave moment. So this is just a tremendous film all around. I kind of give Get the distancing that's needed or maybe it's just a result of it being a play but this is a really important movie and since it's one of the movies that is also available in the vein of Cita Sings the Blues I urge all of you listening put it on I don't care if you're just listening to it because even if you're just listening to a Huey P. Newton story you are going to get so much information and emotional context for someone who is so conveniently demonized that you may need to do what I have needed to do and take a break from taking it all in, but it is important that we keep some of this history alive. So we'll include a link. Please watch it. And if you've already watched it, leave us a comment. I want to know your emotional reaction, your thoughts, and what you would like to see in movies that work with the Black Panthers, as Courtney and I have discussed here. And I think that's an excellent place to end. And for terms of uh, reaching out, Andrew, how can they reach you and how can they provide those feedbacks? You can uh, provide me direct feedback via Twitter. I am at can't stop drew and then we also have a gmail account and i would love to see get filled up with some of those thoughts and that is changing.reels.ac at gmail.com we'll include links too but if you heard that email and you had a thought that you needed to send or got my twitter handle and need to send some additional ideas our way please do not hesitate type them out record an mp3 and send them out However, we want to hear from you. And Courtney, how about yourself and any other means of communication? You can reach me at Small Mind on Twitter. You can also reach us on Twitter at Changing Reels AC. Uh, we're also pleased to announce that we finally have a Facebook page up. So you can find us on Facebook at Changing Reels. No additional initials needed there. Just type in Changing Reels in your search bar. Give us a follow. We're going to try and post links to the shorts and what movies we're going to be discussing in the days leading up to each episode. So you can watch them and then join in the conversation. And big thank you to all who listened to our last episode on The Red Turtle. Notice the real spike in ears that were checking out that episode. I usually like to keep a list of all the new places around the world where we've been getting listens, but actually I can't find that list right now, Andrew. So you know what? The next episode, <laughs> it was actually, it was surprisingly a long one. We, we had places from all over and I wanted to give a shout out to those regions of the world. So next episode, I definitely have pull up that list and we will give you a shout out from wherever the world you are listening and we let you know that we really appreciate it you know at some point we may have to do a uh, melody 
a la Animaniacs of all the countries that we've touched. And as we get to each new country, do yada da 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 Peru, yada da 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 da, and then just actually replace the countries in there as we go on. But maybe the modern superior jingle you're about to hear is a little bit of a smoother exit. So I'll just keep my dream of reaching more countries and have the song playing in my head in the meantime. You know what? That sounds perfect. So for Changing Reels, I'm Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.